Hello everyone, this is Gans and welcome to another episode of the CW podcast where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. Today I'm talking with Nicolas Collin. Nicolas is a co-founder and director of The Family, an investment firm whose mission is to support purpose-driven creators in their effort to bring value to society. He also publishes European Straits, a weekly newsletter analyzing European technology as an asset class. Nicolas is a unique thinker, and this conversation is a reflection of that. We start by going over the thesis of his book, Hedge, but then dive into European technology, China, Silicon Valley, the role of government in innovation, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. You write so much that I'm afraid you could answer any question I might ask you by pointing at an edition of your newsletter. How do you do it? Can you walk me through how you consume and process information? First of all, everything I write is somehow related to the paradigm shift that we're going through from the industrial economy of the 20th century to the more entrepreneurial digital economy of the 21st. So I have clear boundaries as to what I'm interested in. Everything that I work on is related to that. And so I have a strong framework that makes it easier to, to consume information and to, to get more knowledgeable. Uh, second, I've been doing that for 10 years. So I'm quite an old timer in terms of understanding what's going on uh, with the shift to the digital economy. And then I have, so I have a routine basically for discovering interesting articles, sources, ideas, people, which is that, so I used to be a lot on social media, less so today, uh, because I've decided to curb my uh, usage of social media in favor of newsletters. So basically today, every day starts with two or three hours going through my mailbox and uh, exploring all the links included in about 20 or 25 newsletters that, I've, that I'm a subscriber to. And I will open tabs, I glance at the articles, I decide if they're, interested, if they're interesting or not, and if they are, and I clip them in Evernote using Evernote's Chrome extension. And I don't really read it, but it's there in my Evernote with, with tags attached which means that whenever I need to write on a given topic and that article contributes to enlightening me about that topic, I will find it using Evernote. So that's how I consume information. And as for writing, writing is a bit like, you know, running or the, the more often you run, the easier it gets. And so if you get used to writing maybe one hour or two hours every day, you're so warmed up that it becomes quite easy to express your ideas and writing them down. It's just a lot of practice. You write a newsletter like I do. You mentioned you are favoring newsletters over social media. Why do you make that, that choice? And where do you think the media landscape is going when it comes to newsletters? So what I find is that, so I used to be on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Then I closed my LinkedIn account because I find the product very bad, still is. I reopened the account later for, for other reasons, but 
uh, we announced like maybe 15,000 connections at the time and exported the list to my newsletter and wrote a message to people saying, if you want to be connected with me, confirm your subscription to my newsletter. If you're not interested in the newsletter, then goodbye. And um, so that's LinkedIn. Facebook, I quit Facebook because I was stuck within a very large social network of mostly French people talking about French politics, which was not my focus anymore. And so, and I, I couldn't make it work. Like on, once you have a social network on Facebook, you can't escape your network and you're stuck in the conversations that those people want to have as opposed to the topics you might be interested in. And so I was interested in discussing topics related to tech in English and everyone around me on Facebook was interested in politics in French. So I simply decided in the context of the backlash against Facebook to close my account and to leave Facebook altogether which led me to being focused on Twitter. And Twitter is easier for accessing interesting information because you can decide who, whom you follow and you don't need those people to follow you back to get access to their tweets. So I follow thousands of interesting people, which means that every time I open LinkedIn, um, Twitter, sorry, I'm overwhelmed with too many articles, too many interesting ideas, too many threads and too many interesting conversations. So what I do is I try to avoid spending too much time on Twitter. And I've realized when I decided to replace Facebook and LinkedIn with newsletters that most of the articles that are discussed on Twitter by the people I follow are in fact curated in the same newsletters that, I've, that I'm a subscriber to, which means that I'm reassured I don't need to go on Twitter so as not to miss information the best articles will come to me through newsletters. And so I can use Twitter now just occasionally to bond with people or jump into conversations when I have like 15 minutes to kill. But my goal was really stop losing time with unimportant things on social media and focus on work and access the right information. And I realized that newsletters in my mailbox are much better way to do that. I think many, many people are waking up to the same fact. How do you think this will play out for the media landscape, the rise of, of newsletters? I think we're, we're really reaching a turning point at the moment. I think the fact that so many people are launching newsletters is due to the fact that the tools are here now, like you can use Substack, which is much easier than MailChimp or other solutions that previously existed for newsletters. And Substack makes it obvious that anyone can launch a newsletter and share what they have to share, which is a bit like when Medium was launched a few years back. Like before Medium, if you wanted to write something on the internet for everyone to read, there wasn't really a platform to do that. You needed to go on a blog platform, WordPress, and then pick a design and, and then adjust a few parameters. And that would take so, so much time that there was a barrier to entry to expressing your ideas. And then on Medium, in three clicks, you could draft an article and then you hit publish. And in five minutes, it's out there for everyone to read. And 
after that, like we can't, we can't even remember what it was before. The fact that it was so hard to just put your ideas out there. And then came Substack and Substack realized that Medium was not enough and that people who publish interest, uh, content that they want to share want to be able to send that content to all the people they're connected with through their email. And so I think we, we, we've reached a point where the tools are becoming simple, cheap, obvious for everyone, very much aligned with our day-to-day practice in terms of consuming information and, and connecting uh, with other people. And so it will only trigger an acceleration in terms of people redirecting their attention from media websites and social media platforms to the, the people I really want to hear about and in terms of ideas and opinions and, and, and data. I see some media organization realizing that and, and launching their own newsletters and, and trying to use the personal connections of their journalists to, to build um, communities. But I think the media that won't be able to, to do the same will go down and disappear. Yeah, I think a few decades ago, we were going through this bundling of journalists where what you paid attention was the outlet, right? It was the New York Times. But now people are paying attention not to the outlet, but to the writers. So for the New York Times case, it could be Mike Isaac, for instance. So I think that's where we're going and we're seeing um, newspapers go that route. The question will be when the writer decides to leave the newspaper, what will happen with that audience and that newsletter? But we'll see. I want to switch gears a bit, talk a bit about your book, the interesting ideas behind your book, really, uh, and how they do you think those will change with COVID. But before we dive into that rabbit hole, can you walk listeners through the thesis of your book first, two or three minutes? Yes, sure. So I, I published a book in 2018 called Hedge, which is about reinventing the social contract or the social safety net for a more entrepreneurial economy. The idea came from my co-founder, Usama, who spotted... So when Trump was elected, we initially saw that as the reaction of American voters to the rising inequalities and to the, all the economic and social problems that were piling up within the, the American society. And Usama had the intuition that now Silicon Valley will understand that they need to tackle those social challenges in the US. Like they used to be, you know, on their own, far away from the rest of the country, insulated, if you want, not having to pay attention to the stagnating wages and to the decreasing economic security. Now they realize that those problems have consequences because they can lead to Trump getting elected. And so they'll, they'll be willing to, they'll be on the hunt for ideas as to what institutions we should build to make the, the economy more sustainable and more inclusive. So I wrote the book to try to seize that opportunity. Silicon Valley finally paying attention to those topics and we in Europe having ideas to contribute because the backlash has existed in uh, against the backlash against tech companies has existed in Europe for much longer than in the US. I must say 
say that it hasn't really happened. Like Silicon Valley has not been more interested in social safety net related topics since 2016. But still the book stands uh, for me because we, well, I, I think things will get better when we finally find ways to redistribute the wealth that is created by, by tech companies and use that wealth to provide people with, with more stability and more security, which in turn will be translated into more prosperity for everyone. You said in a recent, or I think in, a, in an interview last year, you said something along the lines of Silicon Valley or the US cares about growth, cares about institutions, and China cares about both. Can you unpack that statement for me? And do you think that relationship between Europe and the US and social uh, institutions will change with COVID? Oh, so the, the idea is simple. It's that an economy, a national economy can, can be described as advanced or developed if you have two things. You need to have successful companies that have been growing at a global scale and that dominate the market and that generate that economic surplus that can then be turned into more wealth for everyone. But you also need the institutions so that that wealth that is created by those successful companies effectively spills over the entire economy and contributes to creating more jobs in, in the service sector and an increasing purchasing power for everyone and providing more security. What's interesting, if you look at the West defined as the US plus Europe, you have the US who, which already has the successful companies of the day. Like they have grown the biggest, most successful, largest, most dominant tech companies like they exactly like they did in the 20th century they had the largest car manufacturers like the tech companies today are the equivalent of car manufacturers in the 20th century but the us is not very interested in building the institutions to make the economy more sustainable and more inclusive whereas we in europe we have been stuck in that conversation about regulating tech companies, which is code word for building those institutions for quite a long time. And the problem we have is that we don't have the successful tech companies to pay for it. So there's a gap between the two conversations. The, the, the US thinks that they've managed to, they're, they're getting there because they have Silicon Valley and they don't realize that they need to run the second part of the race, which is about building new institutions, the equivalent of a new deal for the entrepreneurial age. Whereas Europe is focused on the second part of the race without realizing that they need to run the first part before they, they switch to the second part. In China, they don't have that problem. They don't have that problem because making the economy more sustainable and more inclusive is absolutely critical for the Chinese Communist Party. Because being an authoritarian regime, China doesn't have the luxury of providing citizens with an opportunity to voice their anger every four or five years through an election. That's one of the problems with democracies is that we have that opportunity to get angry. If, if you're angry, you can simply vote for the opposition. But in China, they don't have such an opportunity. They never vote. And so the only way for 
Chinese citizens to express their anger is to go out on the streets and to bring down the regime. And the Chinese Communist Party is very much aware of that. And they want to make sure that people are not too angry, that they have a good life, that things get better every year, that jobs are created, that the purchasing power increases. So they really need the wealth to spill over the entire Chinese society so as to prevent unrest, revolt, uh, demonstrations, anger, etc. And so they're doing what it takes. They're growing the large companies, the Alibabas and Tencents, but they're also working very hard to improve the housing market, to deploy a new healthcare system, to take care of, of elderly citizens and by providing them with a pension and so on and so on. They are building all of that because they really want the Chinese economy to be sustainable and inclusive for political reasons. Before saying what I'm going to say, I'm going to preface it by saying that I'm very, very happy about living uh, in the West and being part of the West. But the weird thing is that the way you sort of outline that argument or the conclusion from that could be that the incentives between government and the people are more aligned when you're an economic dictatorship, if you could describe China that way, than when you are a democracy, right? the incentives, I'm not sure if they're that aligned, or at least they are not playing out how they should play out. What do you think? So I don't think it's, the, it's one single factor, actually. The, the reason why China is building all of that, like both uh, successful tech companies and new institutions, is also because they're still a developing country, which means that they don't have too many legacy institutions standing in the way of building new things. Another problem that we have in the West is that we have been so successful in the past and we've built so many things like an effective government, large bureaucracies, lots of regulations, many, many institutions that have made our economies so su successful and so prosperous that now when all of that becomes irrelevant or obsolete or even counter-effective, it's so hard to dismantle all this legacy so as to build new things. You need, well, you need a big crisis or a war or an economic depression, which by the way is exactly what led to building the new institutions in the 20th century. The reason we had a social safety net that worked and that led us into decades of uninterrupted economic growth after World War II was in the US because of the Great Depression, which had led to Roosevelt being elected and delivering the New Deal. And in Europe, we had to wait for World War II for the elite to finally realize that something must be done and that we must build new institutions and we must reinvent everything and rebuild everything from the ground. So that's the problem with democracies is it's that it's so resilient as a system because you can always channel the frustrations and the anger into the political system that when that political system ceases to deliver what people want, you need to wait for almost complete destruction for everyone to realize that something must be done. And so that's the curse of democracies. It's that it's the inertia that works so well when we're in a, a stable 
world uh, in a given paradigm when everything is predictable. But when things change at a fast pace, like these days, we need to adapt very fast. And we don't have the incentive of a regime that really wants to maintain stability at any price, like in China. But I think it's a passing thing. I, I, I think we, well, it's a passing thing. The, the, the big question today is, should we wait for another war before we in the West can finally come back to building new things? I'm actually convinced that the internet makes a difference here. The internet makes it easier for all of us to realize that there are problems, that there might be solutions to those problems, and, and to pool our individual power through networks, communities, so as to make things change without having to wait for a big crisis like a war or an economic depression. I've been interested um, to see that, you know, Silicon Valley figured out the pandemic before everyone else. And that's because the ideas were moving around very fast within Silicon Valley Twitter. And many of those guys had, had it all figured out early in February this year, which means that they knew what should be done. They knew that something big was coming they already had an idea as to what should be done. The only problem was implementation. But it's already quite a lot to have such a large and influential and powerful community aware that something's coming, something should be done, and maybe a few ideas as to what should be done. I don't think that existed uh, in the 1930s right after the, the crash of 1929. Uh, You've been alluding to uh, wars, to wars or to big economic depressions. Do you think the pandemic will play this role of accelerating the conversation? So in a sense, pandemic plus the internet. I think so. I think it's, it's already happening uh, in many ways. Um, it's interesting to see the contrast between people who haven't, have not paid attention to what's going on in tech and have the impression that things are changing in a radical way following the pandemic. Whereas we, people working in tech, are only seeing the acceleration of trends that have been there for quite a long time. So, so there's that big contrast between those who see radical change and so those who only see acceleration of pre-existing change. I think the pandemic contributes to making things happen, to making people realize that things should, should be changed, that new institutions should be built. The, the only thing is that it will unfold in a very different direction depending on the country, because each country has, well, not only the pandemic has contributed to fragmenting the world again, and it now it's more or less every country for themselves, for itself. And, and so we can see that in terms of culture, of policy, of organization of the healthcare system, countries are led into very diff different directions, which means that some of them will probably use the pandemic as an opportunity to reinvent many things and to come out on top, whereas others will remain delusional and, and, and stick to the idea that things will go back to what they were before once the pandemic is over. 
and so but that's normal like those big crises we distribute opportunities we shuffle the cards between winners and losers there are countries that used to be winners that will lose it all because they make the, uh, bad choices in this context whereas other countries that were lagging behind will accelerate and race ahead because they will have used the pandemic as an opportunity to go around some obstacles and to deploy lots of resources and to to finally solve uh, problems that used to be without a solution but now technology makes it possible to solve them is there one specific institution that you think we desperately need more than any of the others i no i'm not sure actually i think that's what makes these things so tricky is that you know for about two or three decades politicians in the west have embraced that very practical hands-on approach they want simple things that can be implemented right away and that deliver results and they're all claiming that oh i'm not political i'm not ideological i only want what what works so give me an idea that works and i implement it i don't think it's that simple i think when you talk about systemic change which is what the paradigm shift is about there's no magic bullet you need to be ready to move the different parts of the system exactly at the same time which is very difficult to do from the top down obviously which is why uh, systemic change always happens at, at the level of an entire society rather than decided by a government from the top down so no i don't really see an institution that would would make the difference what i see on the other hand is that if you divide the population of a given country between different segments and you realize that some of those segments are more exposed or more advanced in the shift toward the entrepreneurial age then maybe you should focus your institutional innovation efforts on those people that that are the vanguard of the paradigm shift and then what you will design with them will serve as, as an inspiration for all the others like take take the example of freelance workers freelancers when you hear people explaining all oh, that you know it's the end of the employment contract that's false it's a false idea and everyone knows that it's false and so it's not convincing at all what i say is that freelancers are interesting because they're the most extreme case of an entrepreneurial workforce and as such we can use them as i don't know test bed to design new institutions that fit the needs of an of of a workforce in a more entrepreneurial economy and then once we have institutions that work for the small minority of people who work as freelancers we can use those institutions as an inspiration to design institutions for the majority of people that will remain employed in in the more traditional sense of the term it's exactly what happened in the 20th century most of our social safety net uh, social contract in the 20th century was designed for factory workers in the automobile industry and those people were always a tiny minority of the workforce but once it 
worked for those people who were the vanguard of the Fordist paradigm of the 20th century. We expanded the same institutions so as to make everyone else benefit from them. It worked more or less well, depending on the industry, the sector, the, the region, and so on. But really, we had this model tailored for factory workers in the automobile industry, and it became the norm for everyone. I think today we should do the same, but instead of taking factory workers as the model, we should use freelancers as, as the model and then expand what we discover with freelancers to everyone else. I'm going to take a different turn here and go back to something you said, uh, which was the pandemic has sort of caused countries to go on their own. In an edition of European Straits titled European Startups as an Asset Class, you made a bull case for European tech. Are you still bullish? Should we still refer to European tech as European tech or should we start thinking about German tech, UK tech, Spanish tech? So tough question, good question. I don't know. I think the two hypotheses are valid. If you're a French investor, you can make a bet that you should invest in French startups only, uh, focusing on the French market. And what you're betting on is startups that will be so successful that we, they will have an opportunity to expand the scope of the, of the products they're offering, but on a relatively small market that is France. Another hypothesis is that the, the single market will finally become a reality for some startups. And so you can bet on a French startup or German startup or even a British startup and, and count on the fact that they, they, those will be able to expand their business at the scale of the entire continent. I must say, must say that so far it, ha it hasn't really happened. You will find very few startups that have been successful in several on several national markets, domestic uh, national markets in Europe. You will even have a hard time finding American companies that have been successful on several national markets in Europe, uh, which means that no one has the playbook yet for expanding a tech business all across Europe. All of that being said, I still think that European tech remains valid as an idea, as a concept, as a thesis, because Europe, even though startups remain focused on their national market, tiny national market, you can still pool capital, talent, know-how, and give birth to a pan-European ecosystem, supporting startups that are focused on their domestic market. And in a way, it's the way Europe has always functioned. Europe has always been fragmented, and with fragmentation, um, tiny markets, but also a lot of emulation and competition and cross-border uh, cross learning and movements and so on. And so, but obviously it's a very different model from Silicon Valley, which is one place in which companies grow to dominate the market at the global scale. Maybe Europe, it's the reverse dynamic that we must pursue. Different places connected through networks that support startups, the majority of which will be focused on their domestic market with a broader scope of products and different models when it comes to generating returns. I think it's still early, but the fragmentation that we're witnessing at the moment, especially between the US and Europe, is, an, is a really good opportunity to cut 
I don't know, to cut the relationship with Silicon Valley and to realize that instead of trying to emulate what they're doing in Silicon Valley, we should find our own way of growing a pan-European ecosystem, which will be very different in terms of practices and outcomes from what has existed so far in Silicon Valley. One of the questions that many people ask themselves is how can Europe be more like Silicon Valley? Do you think that's entirely the wrong question then? Yes, it's the wrong question. And I think the, the, the proof that it's the wrong question is that we've been trying to do that for 20 years, more than 20 years now, and it has never worked. I think we should start by realizing that Europe is very different from the US. We have this impression that it's the same because we, we in Europe all watch Hollywood movies. And, and so we have this impression of familiarity with the US. But when you travel there and you actually spend time in the U.S. on the ground among Americans, you realize that they're so different from us and, and, and that the country is different from a geographic perspective, from a cultural perspective, from any perspective, uh, actually. And so trying to emulate Silicon Valley in, in such a different context can only lead to failure. And so we've seen that for 20 years. But now we, what I find especially interesting in the rise of Chinese tech is that it signals that there's another way. There's another playbook for growing successful tech companies in a very different context, both, both cultural, geographic, political. And so the fact that two different playbooks can coexist, that of Silicon Valley on one hand and that of China on the other hand, suggests that maybe there are many other playbooks, each adapted to the particular context of a region of the world. And so we in Europe should seize that as an opportunity to escape the influence of Silicon Valley, ceasing our vain efforts to emulate them, going back to who we are from different perspectives and, and start working from the bottom up on building companies that are effectively designed to succeed on the, in the very different context of Europe as opposed to the US. Well, we could argue that we've done it before, right? So Florence in the Renaissance, Venice, like the UK in the, during the Industrial Revolution. How can we emulate that success? that we've had in the past centuries? Well, I, I'm not sure we can emulate that, but I think all those precedents that you allude to have characteristics. You need a local ecosystem that is so, so cohesive and supportive and attractive that it, it reaches a, a level of density and and, and emulation that give birth to you know, incredible ideas, incredible businesses, uh, incredible art. So you need that, you need something happening at the local level, but you also need the pooling at the scale of the entire continent. You need people to move around, to exchange good practices, to get inspiration from one another, to pool capital when there's not enough capital in one city. You, you, you go and raise capital from many other cities. 
And so I think uh, Europe will succeed only if we have a few strong ecosystems that are local. Uh, maybe that's London, maybe that's Paris, maybe that's Barcelona, maybe that's Berlin. But that's not enough. You also need that wide network of people and resources at the scale of the entire continent that can be connected and pooled so as to support the initiatives in the ecosystem that work best. So, so it's a tough message to, to bear because it's, it's nuanced. It's like saying you must work at the local level and some of those cities that are working hard at building a local ecosystem will emerge as the new Florences. But you also need to work at the pan-European level because once there's a local ecosystem taking off, those who found companies there will need support from the entire continent. And that means that people need to travel around, need to interact with people all across the continent. And so you still need to work a lot on cross-border business in terms of people, money, ideas. And it's tough in Europe because we speak different languages. So the movement of ideas is very frustrating. People, uh, well, in the context of the pandemic, no one moves anymore. So it's a problem. And as for capital, well, it's difficult to make capital move if people don't know each other. Like if you're an investor based in London, would you invest in a company founded in Italy? No, because you, you know, those guys don't speak the same language and you, what you know about Italy is what you read in the papers. And so you don't have that connection that, that contributes to building trust at the level high enough so as to do cross-border business. It's, it's funny then, because we answered the question that, that I asked you a few minutes ago. Because if you have to play at a local scale, but then you need sort of the continental scale, then European startups as an asset class will be needed, right? So I guess I'm bullish. <laughs> What do you make of the fact that France is constantly trying to build like quote unquote local champions? Like latest is a platform to compete with Booking and Airbnb. Well, it's, you know, political systems have a short memory because usually the depth of our memory of what works and what doesn't work is at the most 70 years because that's about the length of the duration of, of what Carlo Tapere is called a great surge of development. It lasts 70 years or, or between 70 and 100 years. And then things change in such a radical way that the memory of what existed before is lost to the new generations. And so I think that France has a problem, which is that its political system, meaning its politicians, its officials, uh, its civil servants, and even its business people have the memory of what happened in the past 70 years, that is from 1950 to today. And what worked during that period was to support local champions so as to catch up on the Americans. So they had Boeing and we decided to build Airbus and it worked. It was a massive success. And, and so when you, you ask today to a French official that what should be done, they say, well, we should 
do what we've always done, which is catch up by building our own local champions. Then you realize that the reason it worked is that we were already quite advanced in the paradigm shift. Boeing was there as a precedent and we only had to imitate them in a, in a, in a given competitive context, which doesn't exist anymore today because Boeing and Airbus are about manufacturing, which comes with diminishing returns to scale, which, which means that several companies can coexist on the same market. They split the market and usually the leader has no more than 40% of the market and the rest is, is for competitors. In the digital economy, diminishing returns to scale kick off much later, which means that the dominant, the leader on a, on a given market can grow a, a much bigger market share and dominate the market in a posi position of quasi-monopoly. And so it's vain to try to build a competitor against a, a, a company that, that is fueled by powerful increasing returns to scale. And, and that's really what's changed. Like, like the previous time, we're in the position of catching up on the US in terms of building tech companies. They were first, we have to catch up. But catching up follows very different rules in the digital economy because the threshold when increasing returns to scale cease to exist and give way to diminishing returns to scale is much higher than it used to be in the industrial economy of the 20th century. And so you can try and explain that to those people in the French ministries they don't understand because they've been educated sometime between the 1980s and today and everything that's been taught to them was about the previous paradigm and so that's the reason and that's the reason why wars and crises are, are a good thing it's because it usually leads to ousting an entire generation from power and replacing it with a new generation that sees the world very differently. That's what finally happened after World War II in France. All the old, the old elite was discredited because they had collaborated with Nazi Germany. And so they had to leave and to make room for the new generation that rose and, and, and took power and understood the world where, where they lived in. Do you think this purge of the old elite is happening right now. This is something that Mar Martin Gurry outlined in his uh, book, The Revolt of the Public. How, how do you think about that process going on right now? So I think it's happening and Macron is, a, in a way, is an example of that. Like he came from being a nobody to be becoming president at the, the young age of 41. So it was quite quite spectacular. So you could argue that Macron is the pure byproduct of the old elite because he went to all the, the right schools and he, he was both a senior civil servant and an investment banker and so on. But his mindset is that of a new elite. He's interested in new ideas. He's willing to, to, to shift the way he thinks about building companies, fostering economic growth and so on. The problem is that Macron is just one person. He, might, he may be the president, but he's just one person. And he's surrounded by all the people that were already there before, all the civil servants and even the politicians that have rallied him. Like you, 
you have Macron, but you, you don't have an entire generation of politicians having replaced the old guard. Macron is, most of his cabinet ministers are members of the old guard. And so, so I think what we're paying here is that, and, and, and what's a major difference between today and the past is that the state has grown so large and regulations have multiplied so much that society is more rigid than ever, which makes replacing the elite more difficult. The elite is more entrenched because once you're a civil servant in France, you're there for 40 years and no one will fire you. And there are so many of them that those people are there and control the levers of power in the country. And so people might decide to elect Macron as president, but not only is the bureaucracy much more massive than it, than it was in 1945, but those people, we, we have no good reason to get rid of all those people. It's not like in during World War II when most of them had collaborated with the Nazis. And so you could say, well, you, you're compromised, so you have to leave now, early retirement. Today, you can't, you can't do that. There, there's no good reason for that. Why fire those people just because their thinking and their ideas are old? That's not a good reason. Either. This issue of, of governance reminds me of a quote you, you said. Your short Silicon Valley, long nation states like Singapore. Can you unpack that statement for me? Sure. So I think... I'm not sure I'm, I'm that short Silicon Valley, but I think Silicon Valley will change a lot in the coming years. It will go from being the world-leading tech ecosystem to being the equivalent of Wall Street for U.S. tech companies. That is the place where every business uh, builder in the U.S. will go to raise funds to access capital. So what's important here is that Silicon Valley will attract less talent, more capital, but less talent. And also it will be more and more focused on the US as opposed to the entire world. And that's because of the fragmentation we were mentioning before. Also, another consequence of the fragmentation is that the US becoming more inward looking, less interested in the rest of the world, will contribute to creating a lot of problems for Silicon Valley because the US, when it's not leading the free world and engaged in a world order it's contributed to design, is a country that tends to be lagging behind in terms of institutional innovation and technological progress. So that, that, that sounds like, like a fairly odd statement, but if you look back into history, you realize that uh, the US is a country that is so safe and so wealthy in natural resources and so attractive to everyone in the world because so many people want to migrate and to, to settle there, that it doesn't have to work hard on developing its economy. Like when you have everything, the land, the natural resources, the immigration flow, you, you don't need to be you know, that decisive in terms of industrial policy and economic development as opposed to after world war ii when the us was confronted with a threat that was the soviet union and that's exactly when they decided to 
take things very seriously and to allocate a lot of resources to building new technologies and to to making sure that they would be more advanced than their main rival on the world stage. Now the US is becoming more inward looking, which means that they'll be less interested to compete with someone else on the world stage. And they'll cease to trade with the rest of the world. They'll become more self-sufficient, including for manufactured products and so on. And so Silicon Valley will be confronted with, uh, with, with much more problems from a political economy perspective. Washington will become more and more hostile towards Silicon Valley. And business in the US will get more and more done by, you know, being friends with the right politicians and having the support of the governor or the senator or whatever and so on. And that's not the way you you implement radical innovation. That's not a good context. So that would be the main reason. So Silicon Valley will become more of a financial hub, more focused on the US, and the US will become more adverse to radical innovation. And so that's why I'm sort of short Silicon Valley. Will still be a good place to live and people will make a lot of money there, but it won't be the, you know, the beacon of the world when it comes to racing ahead, building new technology. Singapore, city-states in general, that's because it's very difficult to remain relevant as a nation-state once individuals have such an easy time connecting with one another over the internet. That's exactly what Martin Gurry uh, writes in The Revolt of the Republic. Once it becomes easy for people to connect with one another, to exchange information and to share ideas, then the velocity and the speed and the agility leads to new things and many solutions and many ideas. And every institution that is top-down command and control, like national bureaucracies built by nation states, is seen as lagging behind and irrelevant. And so the only way to keep the pace is to be as agile as that population of connected individuals and I think it's more easily done at the scale of a city than at the scale of a country. You know, there's this joke which was told by Matt Clifford about Singapore, British politicians rejoicing in Brexit and meeting a Singaporean minister saying, oh, now that we're leaving the European Union, we'll become more like you, Singapore. And the Singaporean guy says, well, if you want to be like us, you need to to call London Singapore and to label the rest of the country Malaysia and then get your independence. So London could be as successful as Singapore. I'm sure of it. London is a great city, vibrant, very creative. But if you're the UK, you have to deal with the rest of the country. That's 60 million people that are in regions that are in very bad shape in terms of infrastructure, connectivity, the job market, wealth redistribution, healthcare system and so on. And while the fate of the UK proves that it's very difficult to make decisions, bold decisions at such a scale, because the alignment of interests between all those people that effectively are in very different contexts is impossible to achieve. Same in the US, like it's so difficult to align the interests and the views between the coast and the flyover country, between the north and the south, 
between California and New York, that's a nightmare. So sure, you have scale, but if you have scale, you can't deliver anything because no, no consensus can ever be built. So we'll see, but that might play in favor of Europe. We don't know. Just because Europe is that collection of relatively tiny nation states that have the possibility to experiment new things and to take decisions at the right level. So as long as they remain connected to one another, maybe good things can happen. If speed of decision making and adaptation to change are key in this interconnected world, one of the sort of, if you think about organizations, companies are some of the fastest organizations out there. Do you think we'll see a version of the East India Company in the 21st century, essentially a company with the sovereign power of government? I would say that there can be an alignment of interests between a government and a capitalist organization like the East India Company at the time. And if you decide to work together, then you, then you can pull the, the political power of a state with the ability to deliver economic results of a company backed by capitalists. So that's extremely powerful, but that's effectively what has already existed in every developed economy because there was a strong state supporting local champions with a clear understanding of their common interests, which is that those companies were supposed to expand their operations, to create more value, to capture more value all around the world, and to bring that value back to their headquarters, at which point it would be realized under the form of wealth to be redistributed locally so as to develop the local economy. That's a contract that has always existed between states and large, successful expanding capitalist organizations in every developed economy. And you could argue that the East India Company was, had interests aligned with the British Crown on a territory that was India, where the British were effectively sovereign. So I think we'll see the same thing, but you, you need the sovereignty. An East India Company could only succeed in India because the British Crown was the sovereign power there, even though the presence of you know, British troops and so on wasn't that important. So I think we're about to witness the same thing happening in the US. There was a very interesting newsletter by Jan Bremer prophesizing that Amazon was about to become an indispensable auxiliary of the US government dedicated to delivering goods and services that are affordable for all across the US to people with stagnating wages and a safety net that's far from perfect. And so the, the bet, Jan Bremer's bet was that Amazon expanding in healthcare services, financial services and so on, would make the US more livable for those who live there. And as such would become would, would become an auxiliary of the of the government confronted with the demands of US citizens. But I don't see uh, U.S. tech companies doing the same in Europe because of the fragmentation. Like if Trump wanted U.S. tech companies to be to Europe, what the East India Company was to India, he would work very closely with the European Union to negotiate free trade agreements and 
safe harbors for collecting personal data and stuff like that. But he's not doing that. He's only interested in what's happening in the US, which means that US companies will be forced to focus on the US market. And those that count on global supply chains and global markets like Apple, for instance, will have a very hard time maintaining the, the leadership in the future. And so we might see the same happening in each European country, like French companies growing so big and so successful that they will be a key ally uh, and a key auxiliary of the French government operating the country. But I don't see those companies expanding beyond their national borders doing that. Let's go back to European tech for a minute. If you think about Carlotta Perez and her, her framework for assessing great surges of development, it's clear to me that we're now in the deployment age. Part of being in the deployment age is that the next S-curve is coming somewhere. Do you think Europe could be the birthplace of that S-curve? I really don't know, but I think it's premature. I've been, so I, I've been doing that 10 years now, as I mentioned. And for 10 years, I've heard people say, well, maybe we've lost it. We, we won't participate in this surge of development. We, we suck at building tech companies, but maybe we can, you know, leapfrog and start working on, you know, the next shift and, and try to discover the, the new technology that will trigger a new technological revolution. I, the reason I think it's premature is that you need to be either already dominant or in a very strong catching up dynamic in a given paradigm if you want to have a chance of dominating the next paradigm. And, and if you go back, well, Carlotta's has historical span is not that long. It's since the Industrial Revolution. But so we, we're going through the fifth technological revolution, according to Carlotta. And the two first ages were dominated by the UK, Britain. Then the, the US took the lead and never relinquished it. So Germany came close to dominating the age of steel and heavy engineering at the end of, of the 19th century, but they were taken over by, by the US. So if Europe wants to be to the US, what the US was to Britain at the end of the 19th century, that means that you need to be like the U.S. at the time, catching up very fast and building up capacities and attracting the best scientists and the best entrepreneurs and the best tinkerers and, and trying many different experiments and so on. You don't need to be like we are today, like waiting, waiting until the next S-curve happens. That, that's not the proper way to do it. You, you need to be running if you want to catch up the next train. If you stop running and you just wait for the next train, you might not have the velocity or the agility to catch it in time. I think it's premature. I don't think it's the right question to ask. I think we should focus on building the most successful tech companies that we can at the moment, catching up on the US, catching up on China, tweaking the playbook to adapt to what Europe is and how different it is from the other two regions. And then if we do that, we might have a chance to take the leadership in the next technological revolution 30 years from now. 
if we spend all our time today thinking about what will happen in 30 years, that's all lost on building things today. I guess it's time to run then. <laughs> I kept you for almost uh, an hour and a half. I enjoyed this conversation very much. Thank you for, for your time. Thanks. Hey, this is Gonzaga. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.